The Truth in Cannabis podcast is brought to you by Farm True, a proud American hemp company. Uh, I am fortunate enough to be with um, a top pediatrician who specializes in medical cannabis. Her name is Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. Um, thank you, Dr. Goldstein, for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, ma'am. So um, I want to go ahead and talk to you from a general broad overview about how you got into cannabis and medicine and practicing cannabis. So my background is pediatrics. I trained as a pediatrician, but I specialized uh, in pediatric emergency medicine for about 13, 14 years. And as you can imagine, being a mom also, uh, working a lot of night shifts, it started to get old after a while. I always loved it, but I started to get burned out. And I took some time off. Um, And during that time, a friend who was sick asked me about medical cannabis, and just like most doctors, uh, especially at that time back in 2007-ish, I didn't really know anything. I knew we had a program here in California, but I hadn't really paid attention to it. Um, So I started doing some research for her, and I couldn't believe what I was reading um, about the endocannabinoid system, about uh, cannabis uh, interacting with that system, and this basically large... um, um, database of uh, of uh, medicinal benefits that have been shown with medical cannabis, but yet, you know, as a physician, I was never exposed to it. I was never taught about it. It just wasn't something kind of on my radar. So watching my friend go through this illness and start to use medical cannabis, I saw her the benefits. She really uh, felt tremendously better with it. Of course, she was still getting conventional treatment. It was for her it just an add-on treatment, but it completely changed the quality of her life from not so good to much better. And I just really became interested in it that way. I started working in, part-time in a medical cannabis evaluation office. And after a few months doing that, I was hooked uh, on on in this field. I really, really was interested in the science behind using medical cannabis, the endocannabinoid system, the um, changing um, dynamic way that we were getting information. I mean, think about just in the last two decades how much information has come out. Um, And uh, so I've been doing it now for 11 years here in Los Angeles. It's very rewarding work. I began treating pediatric patients in 2013, and uh, now that makes up a large part of my practice. Wow, thank you for sharing your story. Um, where did you go to school? I want to start with, I want to ask that as well. Sure. So I went to uh, Rutgers uh, College in New Jersey for undergrad. Then I went to University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey for medical school. And then I trained uh, as an uh, intern and resident at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Awesome. So you've been in California practicing uh, medicine. You, you're entire licensure, I I assume. Basically, yeah, 29 years. Wow. So as you started um, using uh, the endocannabinoid system and actually kind of like learning it and initially, were you going off of observation? Were you going off of studies? Did you talk with other providers? How did you start? Well, so I tried to read everything I could in terms of the scientific literature. And as you know, the Schedule I status of 
all the compounds that are found in marijuana, um, and this is persistent now. It was placed on the Schedule One back in the early 1970s. We have not been able to get it descheduled. Um, that makes studying the benefits difficult. So when something is in the category of Schedule One, uh, you are allowed to study the detrimental effects. However, you are not allowed to study the benefits. Now, in 2016, the DEA came out and said, we're going to change that a little bit. But I still find that my friends in this and colleagues in this industry who are trying to do research have to jump through a thousand hoops. It's usually three to five years before they can get their uh, research approved by the various, you know, FDA and the NIDA, which is the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and also the DEA. Everybody has to sign off. So it's hard to find clinical trials. Now, outside the United States, Canada, uh, the UK, Israel, Brazil, there are some studies and, and other places as well. There are some studies being published. But to be perfectly honest, in the very beginning, what I was doing was listening to my patients. There are people in uh, the medical field who say it's anecdotal when a patient reports a benefit. That's not evidence. But when you have patient after patient after patient after patient reporting almost exactly the same thing, meaning I'm able to get off my pain pills, my sleep is better, I got off all my anxiety and depression medication, or I was able to decrease the amount that I'm taking. You know, doctor, I noticed that my bottle of Xanax that I got in January, I really haven't touched it, and it's May. That's unusual for me. How is this not evidence? How is, you know, people who have pills, who have access to all kinds of things are choosing not to take those things, and they're choosing to use cannabis. And by the way, people might say, oh, they're just switching their addiction, quote, from one thing to another. But at the same time, what they're reporting is, I'm back at work now full time. I was on workers' comp and I just, I wanted to go back, but I couldn't because my pain was out of control or I wasn't sleeping at night. You just, I kept hearing the same things over and over and over again. And now with pediatric patients, what I hear, and remember, the children I take care of are pretty sick. They have epilepsy, autism, cancer, debilitating genetic conditions, and so on. My child is able to go back to school. My child's able to sit at the dinner table. I mean, you hear these things over and over again. This is evidence. I don't really care what my colleagues say about that. I understand, you know, clinical trials are the end-all, be-all, but cannabis is a different thing than pharmaceuticals. So, you know, to try to make the cannabis plant fit our, quote, pharmaceutical model to prove to us that it works is um, – it's probably not going to work very well. It's going to take a long time to really sort out how we should do clinical trials with cannabis. Because what I'm finding is that those people that do clinical trials, they're finding that about 50% of patients respond because you have to remember our endocannabinoid system is unique to us. So let's say you and I have a similar condition, right? But, let, but your endocannabinoid system is different than mine, so the way that we're going to respond to cannabis being put into our body is going to be different. You may say, I like high CBD, low THC, and I might say, I need a one-to-one -one ratio. And again, that's, we have to respect the fact that people are different. So um, in the beginning, all of this was my learning curve, was listening to the patients, having them share what they were using, share their dosing regimen with me, 
Um, tell me what wasn't working. And so that's it's almost the same as doing an internship and residency, really kind of relearning um, how this particular medicine works for people. Wow. So, yeah, a self, self-induced residency um, and being one of the only people to do it and one of the first – first people to do it i'm sure probably the first pediatrician if if i'm right or am i i think so you know 11 years ago yeah i don't think there were other pediatricians doing it there are now a handful of us there's a couple of pediatricians in massachusetts uh there's like a family practice doctor in maine who's excellent there's a pediatrician in the maryland area i know one in florida i think there's a couple in colorado um and then uh, myself here in uh, California, specifically for children. There are doctors who will see children to help them, but uh, you know, as a specific pediatrician, there's really only a handful of us uh, that have been able to or been willing to uh, recommend cannabis to children. And I'll tell you, it's very rewarding when you see a child who is really suffering. Um, and and. What people should understand is that most parents don't go to the cannabis doctor first, right? They explore with every specialist, sometimes second opinions, third opinion, four opinions. I have patients who have taken over 20 different medications for for a condition and have not found success, but found success with cannabis. Um, I don't think it should be last resort. It's non-toxic. The beauty of cannabis is even if you got started on it, if you needed to stop it, you can stop it on a dime. You don't have to wean it. Many of the medications that children take for autism and epilepsy, if you take them away, boy, it can be very dangerous, as you know, like weaning benzodiazepines or weaning seizure medications. It's a slow process. And so, and the other part of it is it's easy to change. So if somebody calls me and says, you know, I started an oil on Sunday and Wednesday, we're not really seeing good results. In fact, we think maybe it's aggravating the child's sleep. We can just change it. Such a flexible medicine. Wow. And as you navigate the dosage forms and as you've started, it I, leads me to so many questions. I apologize. But I guess my first question to you is, as you start um, recommending cannabis to children, um, seeing that probably it's their first time ever consuming cannabis through mm-hmm. your recommendation, how, how is that response? Like, how, how does that play out? That's a good question. So first thing to know is children, usually the vast majority, over 95% are taking it as oil. Um, Remember, children take liquid medicine for the most part, right? So parents will maybe put it on a uh, syringe and squirt it under the tongue. If they're able to cooperate, we can get them to hold it under the tongue. Then, of course, it's a sublingual administration. If they can't hold it under the tongue, which many of them can't, They'll swallow it. Sometimes parents have to hide it in food because it doesn't taste that great. Some children have what's called a G-tube, which is a tube directly into the stomach, um, and parents can push the oil through the tube the same way they push either puree food or formula through the tube uh, in order to get it in. Um, So that's the first thing. We have a saying in the cannabis world, you know, start low and go slow. There are some people who are very sensitive to low doses, but also – Low doses, just to introduce, help minimize any of the side effects that one might be worried about. The number one thing, of course, is it may aggravate a condition, but really 
sedation. If I started a child on a big fat dose of, let's say, CBD for epilepsy, the parent would call me and say, oh, my gosh, my child's fast asleep, and, you know, it might turn them off. But also knowing that these, this is a medicine that parents are paying out of pocket for, what we're looking for is the, the, the dose that gives the best effect, right, but the lowest dose that gives the best effect. There's no reason to give a higher dose when a lower dose can do the trick. So we often start very low, and we titrate up slowly every one to two weeks for the most part. If I'm treating chronic pain or um, sometimes, uh, you know, some self-injurious or aggressive behavior in a child with autism, we'll go a little faster every three to four days. Uh, and just so we can see what the effect is. Um, I don't like to change medicine daily. Uh, sometimes I will do that with adults with pain, but in children it's good to observe because, you know, if a child's nonverbal, you don't really know what's going on and they may not be able to tell you, so it's good for parents to observe, um, as long as, of course, it's not making the child worse. So, you know, it's a little tricky, but it's really no different than the other medications that we give children, I mean, you give and you observe and you um, make changes as necessary. Uh, the nice thing about the using cannabis is um, that really the side effects are very minimal. It's very important, you know, when I talk with other clinicians who are just inter getting interested in cannabis, they're always focused on the side effects, of course, because doctors do take an oath to do no harm, right? Nobody wants to harm anybody, especially a child. What's interesting that I have found about cannabis medicine is that if you are getting side effects, you are likely not taking the right combination of cannabinoids or the right dosing or the right timing. So we can tweak it. Very few of my patients who are successfully using cannabis have side effects. Sometimes some of the cancer patients will complain of sedation or a little anxiety because they do take high dose. Remember, in those patients where some of these patients were trying to actually use cannabis as a natural chemotherapy as there's evidence that it does kill cancer and inhibit metastasis. But at the same time, in general, cannabis has very few side effects, and if you're getting a side effect from it, you are not taking it correctly. Wow. So as you've gotten into the disease states that you mentioned earlier, epilepsy, autism, cancer, are you you play with doses you play with different recommendations on the cannabinoids um within these certain disease states is it very person specific like how how do you start yeah it is so person um specific so with epilepsy with we do have some data on uh cbd dosing specifically and there seems to be a range of dosing something like you know Low dose is around 2 to 5 milligram per kilo per day for kids, and then high dose all the way up to about 20 milligram per kilo per day. For children, remember, dosing is based on weight. We don't want children on a good dose and then growing and outgrowing the dose. So often recalculating dosages as a child grows is a very typical job for a pediatrician uh, to, you know, maintain a therapeutic range for that uh, child. So with epilepsy, for sure, we're using that type of uh, dosing range. For children with autism, look, I have patients that literally take five milligrams of CBD a day, and then I've got other kids that take 400. You have to remember that absorption of cannabinoids through the gut, whether it's sublingual or through, you know, if you swallow it through the stomach and intestines, 
is very, very erratic. We use that word erratic because sometimes you may absorb 4%, sometimes you may absorb 20%. But in general, what we call the bioavailability, what ends up in the bloodstream, is very low for cannabinoids. You do not absorb 100% of what you take. So, and because it can, uh, it can fluctuate, it does become a little bit difficult um, sometimes to really um, manage the dosing. And so I've even had parents say, you know, it's funny when my child takes a dose with breakfast, I, they seem to do a lot better than when I give it after school. It seems like it does, it's not working as well. Well, maybe when they gave it with breakfast, we know a high-fat meal helps you absorb the cannabinoids. This has been studied and documented. So let's say the child has scrambled eggs and avocado for breakfast and takes their cannabis, they'll likely have a better absorption than if they come home from school and just take the dose without any food at all. So there's all, a lot of these like little things that you kind of have to know about um, dosing, but it is very child-specific because if someone's dose is 5 milligrams and they're doing well on that, terrific. But if they're not, then we titrate up. It really is... Again, because it's flexible, you can do that. Um, what I have found for people, a lot of patients who are self-medicating and they're not getting any input from a physician, is especially with CBD that they may buy online or even buy in a dispensary, um, they very rarely explore the, the very wide range of CBD dosing. Um, and again, I've had patients very low dose and patients extremely high dose. Um, and most patients who have tried it before coming into my office are, are significantly underdosing, and they'll say, oh, CBD didn't work for me. And my analogy is if you had a headache, you wouldn't take an aspirin and crush it and take a spec. You'd have to take a dose. But most people don't know what a dose is, right? So that's where, you know, medical supervision, especially for children, is so important so that you don't miss out on a medicine that can help because you didn't know what you were doing with dosing. Wow. And as you talk about um, that specific dose, you talked about, I said, I think you said 2.5 to 5 milligrams per kilogram? Uh, two to five uh, milligram per kilo per day for children. That's kind of like the starting per, dose for epilepsy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I don't want to be seen as giving medical advice. I don't oh, want sure, patients. Sure, sure. Yeah. But, but at the same time, people have to realize this is for epilepsy often based on weight and we start low and we titrate up. And I'll share with you, some parents get to, you know, as we titrate up, again, we go slowly. We're tr treating a serious condition and we're looking for that sweet spot dose without causing a side effects. And also remember too, kids with epilepsy are often on other seizure medications and we don't want drug interactions. So, you know, we're careful. And I've had families call me and say, well, we've been taking it and we've been titrating up and we're not seeing anything. And I just you know, when I calculate the range, I say, you know, you're not, you're barely into the therapeutic range. There's this huge amount we can go up. And I don't want to, you know, and some people say, well, let's just give them the maximum amount. And you can't blame them. I mean, their child is sick and having seizures. But at the same time, that's not really the way to go either. You know, it's, it's, we have to kind of be methodical about the approach so that we don't cause side effects, drug interactions. At the same time, as somebody said, well, I gave my kid a big dose probably nothing bad's going to happen. Um, in general, CBD is an extremely safe medicine, um, and we're really not seeing any um, serious, you know, side effects. Most, most side effects, if they do occur, are very mild. 
and easily mitigated by, again, changing the timing, the dosing, the, you know, uh, sometimes the product. And as you as you talk about that, I know you mentioned CBD. Are you including THC in in some of these conversations as well? I know you talked. We talked a little one to one. You mentioned. Are you sure. kind of leaning more into CBD or right. kind of? Well, so what we do, the approach for many patients, but not, again, you know, this is it's case specific. This is you know kind of the clinical practice of medicine. You take a history. You you're uh, making medication committees on you do the whole thing right so that you really know what you're you know who this person is that you're treating um, in general when I recommend what I call CBD rich medicine I'm talking about um, oils that have ratios somewhere around 15 parts CBD to one part THC all the way up to about 30 to 1 so 30 parts CBD to one part THC that's usually where I start in pediatrics we have found that children who have very severe violent uh, tendencies, aggression, or um, self-injurious behavior, they're not sleeping well, severe anxiety. Like I have families where the, like the kids won't go into a building. You know, they can't get into the dentist's office. The child's anxiety is just beyond, right? I've had kids have meltdowns in my office because they've never seen my office before, and it's just overwhelming to them. Um, and imagine living like that. You can't go anywhere, right? Um, the evidence shows there's two recent reports, one out of Stanford and one out of Israel, that show that children with autism are likely to have what we call an anandamide deficiency. Anandamide is the brain's inner THC. So we make a THC-like compound, and its job is to regulate the flow of neurotransmitters and basically to tell ourselves stop sending off balance messages maintain homeostasis meaning maintain balance so we know that children with epilepsy and autism have over excitation or neuro excitation their brain cells are sending kind of this over excited message that's what a seizure is is it's an over firing of of brain cells so uh, anxiety is overfiring. Pain, the, the sensation of pain is your brain kind of sending that extra message. Nausea, vomiting, these are all messages that are being sent, like your brain is basically saying, something's wrong, I'm firing ahead. Okay, so just to understand that. Our brain makes these this compound called anandamide, among a few other um, compounds that are in a category called endocannabinoids. Endo means within cannabinoids means a kind of cannabis-like compound. And if you don't make enough anandamide, you are in a state of an imbalance and you're it's like not making enough thyroid hormone or not making enough insulin. If you don't make enough insulin, you get called diabetes and you get you take a source of insulin externally, right? And that's why people inject insulin or have an insulin pump. If you have low thyroid, you get a diagnosis of hypothyroidism and the doctor prescribes thyroid medicine for you to replace that. So we know now from these two studies from Stanford and from Israel that children with autism have lower circulating anandamide um, than children without autism. So now we know about this deficiency. So then we can replace anandamide with THC. THC looks almost exactly like and mimics anandamide. 
So people say, well, what about kids getting high? Well, remember, if they're starting in a deficient state, they have a very low level, we're replacing it. It is unlikely that, I mean, they can get, uh, you know, intoxicated from THC, but that's why we start very low dose and we titrate up to C. And I'll give you an example. Yesterday in my practice, I had a young man come in. He's 11 years old, nice boy, lovely parents, and he has severe aggression, self-injurious behavior. Um, he does a lot of stimming, which is kind of the flapping when he gets excited. The anxiety is out of control. Um, school has been an issue because, um, you know, they're just impatient with him. And um, we were on um, high CBD, low THC, and it made him actually a little bit worse. CBD sometimes in these kids can actually be overstimulating. So we switched him to a ratio of one to one, one part CBD to one part THC. And he's been doing incredibly well. And then the one thing that the mom said, you know, has still been a bit of an issue is some of the self-injurious behavior and also um, a little bit anxiety and sleep, which the one-to-one wasn't necessarily addressing. So they got, under my instructions, a separate bottle of low-dose THC, and they started adding in some THC dosing, and the mom says it's like he's a different child. He's patient. He's able to go to new places and not have the anxiety. And very importantly, what people must understand is he is not intoxicated. Nobody wants an intoxicated child, right? We want him to go to school and succeed and learn and participate in his life but not be loaded. So for for him, adding in THC, which may be more THC than I could handle or you could handle or somebody else, remember in a deficient state, we're just replacing what's missing. And I, again, go back to the analogy. I don't give insulin to people who don't have an insulin deficiency. We wouldn't give insulin to a non-diabetic, right? That would be dangerous. You don't replace thyroid hormone in people who don't have low levels of thyroid hormone. So remember, this is an indication for the use of THC in this particular child. Okay. Wow. And you, you get, I see how... I see how that works, and I think that was a beautiful description about the anandamide deficiency and where that plays in and the structural relationship to, you know, THC, and that's, wow. That's really now, if I, I would say to you, if somebody could come up with, like, a form of anandamide that is similar, meaning, like, extract anandamide, and be able to, you know, replace it with anandamide, right? And it's interesting that nobody's done that. Nobody's actually used, like, the way we use insulin to replace insulin, right? Right. You don't, it's the same compound. <laughs> it's the same exact. Right now, we don't have anandamide to give to these kids. But something very close is from a plant. It's from a plant. Now, we do have synthetic... Uh, THC, and it goes under the name dronabinol or marinol, which can be prescribed. But it is a isolate, meaning it is just only when you buy that or get prescribed that medicine, it's only that. When you buy a bottle of THC oil, remember what you're getting is all of the hundreds of compounds that come along in the cannabis plant. So we know there's all kinds of cannabinoids, about 120 have been described 
We also have these terpenes in the cannabis plant. These are the essential oils that give it its very specific odor. They are terpenes that work synergistically with the cannabinoids. So we know, for instance, that when you have, let's say, myrcene, which is a um, terpene essential oil that's also cross-species with hops and rosemary, if you combine myrcene with THC, it creates a more sedating effect. So when somebody says, oh, I use a certain strain of cannabis, it really helps me sleep at night, I'm pretty sure that if it's got THC and myrcene in it, that's the combo that they're going for, right? That's the, the sedating effect. So it's not just isolated um, uh, cannabinoids. Um, so it's important to understand that the whole plant, kind of as Mother Nature gives it to us, is very important. That's why there's so many there's so many. Um, uh, questions and concerns about like which strains are people using and uh, you know oh I use this strain and other people say oh I don't like that strain I use this strain well what's the difference let's say they're either high CBD or high THC well that might be the same but the combination of other cannabinoids and other terpenes can actually give um, specific strains you know give have them give different effects and that can be very individual I see and as you talk about like starting from listening to your patients, it's obvious how how much empathy you really can you have and you show that you've really experienced and taken time with these with your patients. Um, how many patients do you think you've treated over over since uh, 2013 in medical cannabis? Well, so since 2008, which when I very first started, although I didn't see children until 2013. So okay. from 2008 until now, it's been over like 15,000 through our practice. For children, just seen by me, I'm kind of approaching almost the 900 mark. Um, and I'm very excited to say that we got a, another pediatrician to just join the practice. Actually, his first day is next week. And I'm really excited to have him on board because I certainly can't take a, a care of everybody myself. These are fairly medically complex children, but I don't want people to think it's rare because there's two statistics that's very important to understand. Fully 35% of people with epilepsy do not respond to conventional medication. That's one out of every three. That's a big number considering that you know epilepsy is fairly prevalent. And pediatric epilepsy has a prevalence rate of twice that of adults. And then the other statistic that's very um, alarming, really, is that the CDC now says that one out of every 59 children is affected with autism. And when I first started doing this, the number was higher, one out of 150, one out of 100, or I just saw one out of 70-something. Now it's one out of 59. So clearly something's going on, and I'm not sure what might be causing this. Maybe it's the chemicals in our food, the chemicals in our, in our environment between, you know, cleaning products and the air quality. I mean, who knows, right? Um, I think it's a, it's a multifactorial issue. But, again, these are not uncommon problems. And right now um, there are two drugs that are approved by the FDA to treat what's called the irritability of autism. So they neither drug, um, and by the way, both are what we call atypical antipsychotics with a long list of side effects. Both do not address the core symptoms of 
epilepsy, meaning improve those symptoms. They actually just treat the irritability, which you can kind of read between the lines, which means calm down, right, just almost tranquilize. Um, there are some patients that do well on them, but again, I see, a, again, a skewed population. People say, oh, we tried those drugs, we, they didn't work, they gave us, or they gave horrible side effects or both, and parents aren't willing to continue with those drugs, and they didn't see really any benefit to do so. Or some families are just philosophically against giving their child, you know, something called an antipsychotic, right? Um, so uh, uh, until maybe we get better medicines, but what I tell people is cannabis, because we now know that maybe one of the reasons that a child with autism has the symptoms that they have is that they don't have enough anandamide. And I use this analogy, and many of the parents really respond to this. I say it's like a Ferrari going down the road without brakes. That's how they feel like their child's impulsivity and, you know, exactly like what their day is like is they're just powering through the, all the aggression, the impulsivity, the anxiety, the lack of sleep. It's just, it's too much. And what cannabis does is it kind of tells the brain, no, get back into balance. And that's really important for people to understand. Again, we're not trying to tranquilize or knock these kids out. We're trying to get their brain back into balance so that their function is better. And the quality of life challenges or, like, breakthroughs that you see as far as being able to behave normally in school or functioning normally at the dinner table. Can you expand a little bit upon that in, in terms sure. of how you've seen it? So what we, you know, every child's different, but, you know, when I have, so for instance, the family yesterday that, you know, is on the, they have the child on two oils. One is the one-to-one -one ratio CBD to THC, and then the other is an added-in THC. Again, customized treatment is very important to understand with cannabis. One size doesn't fit all. But what they're telling me is the aggression is gone. The anxiety is down. He's sleeping better at night. This is all, you know, fantastic for the family because these are all things that, remember, it's not just the child. It's the whole family unit that's that gets affected. When I, I have another family that came in this week and the mom said to me, I'm not letting you touch the nighttime dosing. We need help with daytime dosing, but the nighttime dosing is working. She says, we are finally all getting seven to nine hours that night. She said, we went seven years without sleep since this child was born. He just was never sleeping at night. And remember, sleep deprivation is terrible. It's, it affects everybody. Um, I have a little boy that I wrote about in my book um, who came to me at age four with epilepsy and autism. And um, he was on some medications that created some, ag really aggravated the autism. The behaviors were very difficult for the family, and cannabis turned everything around. This is a child now who's thriving, mainstreamed in a school. Um, Mom that just sent me a picture. He won a, a an award. I think he's in third grade. He won an award for self-discipline. I mean, that's huge for a child who has autism. Um, he's learning. He's doing homework. Um, he's um, just involved in all kinds of activities, and you know, it's really changed their life. Um, some families, we start to see some of these kids who are nonverbal get speech. I'd say about 30% of patients start to see improvement in speech. So that's something that you don't get with really any other medication as far as I've seen. Um, 
again, with the sleep and just the overall kind of balanced life, that's that's what can be expected with cannabis, better focus, social interactions, less seizures. Um, and again, I don't claim that it helps every single patient. There's certainly patients who don't respond. For me as a clinician, it's frustrating. I want them all to respond. Um, but I would say about 20 to 25% of patients um, after maybe a round of five, ten different products, they may get some benefit, but it's not, you know, um, stellar. I, and there are certainly some patients that, you know, some things don't work. But what I tell people is, why wouldn't you try, especially since the side effect profile is very low and the, and the safety, there's no question that it's safe, especially under medical supervision. You got nothing to lose. You might as well try it if there's um, no response, you cross it off your list and you move on to other things. Don't spend your money on it if it doesn't work. For sure. And that kind of segues into like new healthcare providers getting into this. And like, what would you t- tell a new pediatrician who's, I mean, curious about incorporating cannabis into their practice or a psychiatrist who's treating autism? What would you tell these people? Right. It's a great question because we're not taught about this in our in our training in uh, medical school, and we're not taught about it in re- internship and residency, or maybe it's briefly touched on. Very like you hear one lecture in three years, you know. So what I recommend first is to um, check out my videos on YouTube. It's not that I have a; it's, these are just like um, talks that I've given at various conferences are available. Uh, Dr. Dustin Sulak. Um, Shout out to him. He's in Maine. He has a program online. I think it's called healer.com, H-E-A-L-E-R.com. He also has a lot of videos on YouTube as well, just to get an understanding. And then go into either PubMed or Google Scholar and just educate yourself. Read the scientific articles about the endocannabinoid system. And if you Google endocannabinoid system and anxiety or endocannabinoid system and autism, you are going to see that much of the research, much of the of these articles that have been published are have come out really in the last decade. We're talking about new information. You're not gonna you may see some old things from nineteen seventies and eighties. And by the way, most of the stuff from the nineteen seventies and eighties, remember what I started with, when it's a controlled substance, schedule one, you're allowed to study the detriment. So there's all these articles on how can it, you know, you know, like you, this is your brain on drugs kind of thing. And it's all skewed towards chronic, heavy, recreational, THC-rich cannabis. And that's just not what medical cannabis is. We're not doing that as clinicians. So it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. And that's what I'm finding is there's this disconnect for doctors in that they're tr- having a hard time moving from the understanding of like, recreational slash misuse or abuse to the medical side of it. And what people don't realize is that true medical use, there's I don't see abuse and I don't see addiction. I don't see dependence because we're incorporating other cannabinoids apart from THC. We're using CBD. Here in California, we have CBG, cannabigerol. We have THCA, which is tetra hydrocannabinolic acid, which is the raw form of THC, very medicinal, anti-inflammatory, anti-convulsant, 
I'm seeing very nice results with it. We also have CBDA, which is the raw form of CBD. Remember, we used to think that you have to heat the plant in order to activate it, but it turns out that the raw compounds also have medicinal value. So how are you going to learn about this when it's not in the literature from 40 years ago, right? So you have to look at the new, really what's on the, what's, what's in the scientific journals now. And then what I tell people too is reach out to those of us who are doing this. I have a book on the market called Cannabis Revealed. It's available on Amazon. It's a good primer for doctors. It's also great for lay people who want to know more. It kind of walks the line between, you know, too scientific and not scientific enough. I try to to make it so that everybody can learn. But there's also other wonderful books out there. If you go on Amazon and just look for, you know, cannabis books and read the reviews, you'll you'll hit up some some really good books. There's a book called Cannabis Pharmacy by my friend Michael Backus, B-A-C-K-E-S. That's an excellent book. But you really have to put in, you know, the groundwork to get kind of a basic understanding of the endocannabinoid system and then about the cannabinoids and what they do and how they work. Going to a cannabis conference, a medical cannabis conference, is a great way also to start to get educated because you will definitely learn something. Um, Many of us who are involved in this try to speak as much as we can because, again, it can't just be a handful of us. There needs to be more people doing this um, because there's so many patients that can um, benefit when cannabis is incorporated medically into their regimen. Yes, 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 and yes, I fully support that as a pharmacist myself. new to the medical cannabis game, deep diving and truly trying to understand um, from practitioners such as yourself. So the insight is amazing. And as you talk about some of these events and um, the the medical cannabis conferences, what do you see in the industry, like from the top as as a, a superstar in the medical cannabis, what do you see now and what do you see kind of going forward one to five years? So what I see moving forward is hopefully, uh, and and I'm getting a lot of interest from physicians, a lot of physicians reaching out to me, asking me either to speak at their hospital or to speak to their particular group. I just gave a talk to a wonderful group locally to me called Women uh, Women in Medicine. It's a terrific group, and I was able to give a talk to people of all different specialties in the in the audience, and it was. They were so open to learning because the reality is, is when your patients come in and ask you about it, you shouldn't just say, oh, I don't know anything or, oh, no, it's bad for you. You should be knowledgeable. You should be the smartest one about it, and you should be able to have that conversation. So I'm happy to say that just in the last few years, I'm seeing more and more physicians coming around to it. As far as I'm concerned, it's just another tool in the toolbox. You don't have to do what I do, which is specialize in this. You can just at least be um, up to par in terms of having that conversation with your with your patients. And if you can, may, maybe learn about a little bit in terms of recommenda- recommending it and then checking in with your patients so that you can start to learn how to um, use cannabis as medicine. I think um, what's happening in California uh, hopefully will happen in other states as well where what we're seeing is more cannabinoid compounds come on the market. And what I mean by that is, for instance, if you want a bottle of CBD-rich oil or a product that says, you know, high CBD, 
it's going to have a lot of the compounds, all these compounds from the cannabis plant, and then the dominant compound, let's say, is CBD. If you buy a bottle that's one-to-one, you're going to have the two dominant compounds, CBD and THC. But as I mentioned, we now have these other compounds, THCA, CBDA. And what that means is in that bottle, that's the dominant compound. Now we have CBG. There's CBN on the market, cannabinol. Um, just recently, I heard of a company that came out with THCV, which is tetrahydrocannabivarin, which has some very interesting effects. And we should start now that it's out on the market. We can we kind of know what it does from some research. But remember, until you kind of see a whole bunch of people taking it and like really gather the data on their experience with it, you don't really know. And so now we're seeing that on the market and uh, there's also uh, Delta-8 THC that I've seen in one product. So what's happening is we're seeing more and more cannabinoids. What that means is that patients can really customize. And one thing very important is that very few of my patients have intoxication as part of their regimen. Uh, some of the adult patients find it pleasant and they want to have that, and that's fine. But again, in children, we're not doing that. And... Uh, having all these other compounds available allows you to customize your regimen so you don't really have to necessarily rely on THC if you don't want to. So I'll just give you an example. My parents, who are in their 80s, are cannabis patients, and neither of my parents have been intoxicated. And they have terrific results for chronic pain and for sleep. And they have not been intoxicated. And I'm saying I'm not saying intoxication is a bad thing. I'm just saying that if you're worried about that as a patient, you don't have to have that, especially in California where you have all these other compounds that you can use to dial in for your medicine. So I'm hoping that other states will allow for their laws and will allow for more products to come on the market that um, have these other really wonderful compounds from the plant. I think the other part of it is that until we get cannabis off the Controlled Substance Act, we're going to be constantly saying, oh, we need more research, we need more research. As a physician, I would love to see research that tells me which cancers respond to which cannabinoids, right? Um, we don't have that data. There are people working on that in other countries, in Israel especially, but when somebody comes in and says, what cannabis should I take to try to kill my stage four breast cancer? I don't have that answer. And that would be nice to have. How do we get that answer? Well, that's called research. And until we can get cannabis off the uh, Controlled Substance Act, we're just not going to be able to do that. I do not think it needs to be rescheduled from one to from schedule one to two or schedule three or schedule four. I think it needs to be descheduled. It is very safe. It is not nearly as addictive as legal compounds, i.e. alcohol and tobacco, which are not on the schedule, which once you hit 21 in any state you can access, right? Um, they have cannabis in this cage, and it's just uh, interfering with our ability to really know. We should be way ahead from where we are now, but we have 80 years of prohibition and until um, the federal government changes it, we're just we're stuck. Do you think it's going to be descheduled anytime soon? I mean, personal opinion. I don't know. I thought it might be, but so far not so much. And so, you know, I have high hopes that somebody will do it. It's very hard to know. It doesn't seem to be high on anybody's list of uh, priorities. 
And, you know, there are groups like Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, who has Americans for Safe Access. All these different groups have tried so hard to, you know, like sue the DEA and, and petition the DEA. And they just, you know, and the big question is, is now, is it not really about cannabis, but is it more about pharmaceuticals and protecting that interest, right? So do pharmaceutical companies not want cannabis to be studied and to be available because that cuts into their profits. You know, you hear people talking about that. Sure. I agree. Tobacco too. Yeah. And probably alcohol because there are, there's a study that came out that showed medical cannabis, states that have medical cannabis laws, uh, people spend less money on alcohol. So there you go. Right. So, and we know what alcohol does. Alcohol kills people. We know what tobacco does. Tobacco kills people. Uh, we do not have deaths from, from especially from, from medical cannabis. We, the CDC doesn't even count marijuana deaths anymore because there aren't any. It used to be on the list. There aren't any. <laughs> we do know now from studies that a lot of people are transitioning off deadly opiates by having access to cannabis and specifically having dispensaries and laws that allow you to safely access cannabis have been shown now to decrease opiate deaths in, in states. In fact, in California, they found 33% less opiate deaths over a certain time frame. And that, that was actually published back in 2015. It's probably even higher now because, you know, there's more people accessing uh, legal cannabis. But it's really interesting. You know, sometimes I think that we live in an upside-down world. Why are opiates so uh, overly prescribed? And cannabis is still like doctors don't even want to talk to you about it. I just find it fascinating. Sure. And hopefully with the Truth in Cannabis podcast, we can put a small little dent in that as well. You know, your incredible work and body of work is awesome. And we are extremely fortunate to follow your story as you help guide the healthcare community through cannabis and into the new age of hopefully green age and the end of prohibition and and these big vision things. Um, Dr. Goldstein, as, as I get ready to wrap this up, um, how, how do people get, it, get in touch with you um, if they are interested? If you are a provider, are you going to be sure. signing up a program as well? Um, so, I, um, so my office is located in Los Angeles. Right now, unfortunately, I have a waiting list. And as I said, I hired another doctor to help me, and he's getting started um, next week, as I said. So we're hoping to get through the waiting list. Um, and what I tell is feel free to contact us and, you know, get your get get on the waiting list. Right now we're just taking um, pediatric patients under, they have to be, you know, 0 through 17 um, at this point. Um, and... Potentially, we'll have. Uh, I I still see all of the adult patients that I started with uh, back in the day. So my patients that have been following me for years, I still continue to see them. But there are other excellent uh, doctors who will take adult patients. So there's a doctor who I'm happy to refer people to that's in Santa Monica and some other doctors throughout the state um, who we can refer patients to if they call in. Um, so if somebody wants to follow us, we're on Instagram. It's just Bonnie Goldstein, MD, and my first name is spelled without an E at the end, B-O-N-N-I, and then Goldstein, MD. So we have an Instagram account. We do have a Facebook account, which is under the name of my business, which is Canna Centers, 
C-A-N-N-A hyphen C-E-N-T-E-R-S. Um, and all of you, these are other ways to reach out to us. If you go to our website, canacenters.com, there's a contact us page if you're interested in uh, more information. Um, we are not allowed to give medical advice to people who are not our patients. I am a licensed physician in California, and I'm required to follow the standard of care, which requires an in-person um, you know, evaluation in my office, just like any other doctor. It, you know, we don't, we can't just give advice here and there. Uh, people sometimes think, oh, it's just cannabis. Just tell me how much to take. But I'm, my livelihood is controlled by the medical board, so I have to make sure that I protect my license and take really good care of my patients uh, following the standard of care. Um, but certainly we have a big referral list, so we're happy to help patients um, with referrals. There's also a couple of nonprofits that people can reach out to, if you don't mind me giving out their names. One is, yep, one is called the Realm of Caring, and their web their website is the t h e r o c dot u s. So t h e r o c dot u s. They're a wonderful group out of Colorado that uh, is really patient focused, and they have tremendous amount of information to help people um, negotiate the medical cannabis laws in their states and to really figure out. Uh, maybe where to start with a medical cannabis uh, uh, regimen. There's also another wonderful group called Project CBD. I think it's projectcbd.org or .com, forgive me, but you can find it if you Google Project CBD. Tremendous amount of wonderful information, and um, they also can help patients sometimes negotiate their state laws and, and get a really good um, what I would say, um, credible information on cannabinoid medicines. Um, and then another website um, that may be helpful for people to figure out uh, what's going on in their state and maybe to help um, figure out is you can go to normal or like so California normal is CA normal and you can just look uh, for your state's information under normal and I think it's N-O-R-M-L. Uh, either .org or .com, but go ahead and take a look. And then also Americans for Safe Access, and I think their website is safeaccessnow.org. That's another great group um, that exists to help um, patients negotiate, you know, where do I begin, how do I find a doctor, what's allowed in my state. Perfect, perfect. I'm going to go ahead and link the nonprofits. I will go ahead and link Canna Centers. Um, as well as your Instagram and Facebook onto um, the show notes and everybody else. Um, please, I hope you enjoyed the show. We are super thankful to Dr. Goldstein for coming on and um, just a great opportunity. So thank you again, Dr. Goldstein, for coming on today. Okay, so you're going to laugh at this. Can I just say one more thing? Yes, please. Okay, I'm on the advisory board of a nonprofit, and I forgot to mention that. Oh, mention please, let Yes, so this on. is a wonderful one, especially for families uh, with children who are not doing well. Whole plant, uh, whole plant access for autism. Uh, so Google that. They have a Facebook page. I'm on their advisory board. They're terrific. I don't know why I blanked. I'm sorry to you guys. But it's whole plant access for autism. And they do a really wonderful job of educating parents and giving good, sound, credible information so i didn't want to forget them i apologize yes ma'am 
Yes, ma'am. We'll go ahead and include them to whole plant access for autism. Yes. Thanks so much. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So um, thank you again. You have yourself a wonderful day. Okay. Thanks, Joaquin. Take care.